our position was that, look, everything that we were promised had been denied. So keeping project secrecy on a special access program where you've been, where you've been physically and psychologically damaged and not even paid and given what you were told and what you had agreed on a quid pro quo basis by the U.S. government, we thought actually necessitated us coming forward because we had been abused by the U.S. government. We had been cheated. Our constitutional rights had been violated. Our sanctity as sovereign human beings had been transgressed. That's what happened. In other words, we weren't just uh, day-tripping whistleblowers who were coming forward because we wanted to, or we were anti-government. We had been lied to and cheated and abused by our government. So if they wanted to maintain project secrecy, they should have kept their words, and they didn't. They didn't keep any of their promises. So we came forward because we felt it was necessary to protect the American people from the direction that the U.S. government had evolved toward, which is the deep state a U.S. intelligence community and sometimes military violating constitutional principles and the law itself and basic fairness. You're listening to ExoPolitics Today with Dr. Michael Sala, your source for the uncensored truth regarding the human, extraterrestrial, global, and political agenda. Click the like button and subscribe to this channel. And now, here's Dr. Michael Sala. Well, it's my great pleasure to welcome Andy Basciago back to El Exopolitics today. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Michael. Good to be back on with you. Well, now, we've covered uh, pretty extensively your involvement in Project Pegasus from 1969 to 1972. And we talked a little bit about the role uh, Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld played in your involvement with Project Pegasus. And you, you mentioned that uh, there was a position or a track offered to you as a naval officer that you would have been fast-tracked or uh, facilitated into getting into the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis. And that would have been used as a cover for the CIA and, uh, and the DARPA to continue to use you in projects. So... You know, my question is, so why did you decline that? I mean, you were offered that by Rumsfeld, your your father supported that, and you were 17, 18 at the time, and you apparently declined that. So can you just kind of walk us through what happened with that whole Secretary of yeah. Defense Naval well, Academy? Just to, to, Michael, just to sort of track this naval thread in my life, I was told when I was about eight or nine, when I began time traveling for DARPA's Project Pegasus, that I had been made a Navy lieutenant. But no real big matter was made about that. Then when I was, well, then when I was still in Pegasus, I overheard uh, Rumsfeld say to my dad that we were gonna send all the children in the project to the Naval Academy, and hence into the Navy, not CIA or anything else, to involve them in future project activities, namely to for them to continue being chrononauts for the government after going through Annapolis and then into the Navy, which of course has always had ambit over time travel because originally the Navy saw over 
the physical horizon um, on the on the world's oceans, but then had ambit over the time horizon. And then when I was in about 15 or so and attending Chatsworth High School in the Los Angeles area, um, my dad sort of just sat me down and said, let's talk about your application to Annapolis. And I said, Dad, what, what application to Annapolis? And he said, you're going to be going to the Naval Academy. In fact, all you have to do is go over and have your interview for Annapolis with our local congressman who was Barry Goldwater Jr. over in Woodland Hills, California. And I said, Dad, look, I, I do not want to go to a, a military academy where, well, number one, I'll be yelled at and dominated by senior officers for four years during my college education, and then I'll go into a, a military culture where I could literally be, you know, commanded to take a military objective and lose my life. I believe that that was an anachronistic form of military science. And I was, I think I was sort of right in kind of anticipating sort of the whole earth battalion sort of concept of military science that you should empower every officer, every enlisted uh, person to make their own decisions to, you know, pursue a military objective while saving their life and that of their comrades. So I basically told my dad, I don't want to go to the Naval Academy. I didn't disdain it because one of my brothers-in-laws at that time, who was four years older, had uh, was was in or had just left the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs and begun flying AWACS for the Air Force. Well, first kerosene carriers and the, and the AWACS. So then they then dropped this young man named Tim something. Um, Tim Hodgins or something like that in my very class at Chatsworth High School. And Tim began chatting me up about how neat it would be to, to go to the Naval Academy. So I really started thinking about it. I had always been impressed by the smart look of uh, the Naval uniforms when I would be consulted by uh, LCDRs, you know, Lieutenant Commanders for the Office of Naval Intelligence when I was a child in Project Pegasus. I just thought it was a neat uniform. And then I, so for a period there at age 15 and 16, I began sort of thinking about becoming a Navy officer because it had, I had sort of been tantalized by the prospect of everything that that would involve, a free education, four years of, uh, of work after graduating from the Naval Academy, all of the benefits, educational, you know, uh, medical and so forth. But then I... I ultimately begged off from going over to the meeting that was scheduled with Congressman Goldwater Jr. And I got a call from his secretary and said, young man, do you know what you just did? Um, uh, Mr. Goldwater is, is a U.S. congressman, and you just stood him up for a meeting that had been scheduled for you. And I said, ma'am, I've sort of been, had my, my arm twisted behind my back to do this. But the basic idea was to send us to the Navy. Now, when I got involved in uh, the, uh, the Mars Jump Room program beginning in summer of 1980, one of the co-participants who was literally five days younger than me was William Cameron McCool, one of the astronauts who un sadly died on what, February 1st of 2003. 
during the Columbia space shuttle disaster as it, as it was re-entering Earth's atmosphere. So Willie McCool was attending the Naval Academy, and it, it, it kind of made, when we were all describing ourselves to that small class at College of the Siskiyous of the people who were being trained to become Mars astronauts, I, I think it kind of bothered my dad that Willie was talking about being at Annapolis. And, and later, even when I was going to Mars, I was sitting in our TV room in, at the house in Chatsworth, and I, I said, Dad, besides what we've worked on together, please tell me everything you've done for the U.S. government. And he said, I don't think I have to. And I said, why not? And he said, because you didn't serve. So that's a measure of how, how angry my father was at me for not going Navy as I was supposed to, as Rumsfeld had briefed us on when I was a kid at Pegasus. Because imagine that. I was going to another planet for a program with a lot of naval people in it. Willie McCool, Admiral Stansfield Turner, and Ross Perot were Annapolis graduates among my Mars, fellow Mars astronauts. But even while going, in around 1983, my dad said he wouldn't tell me more about his career with intel and military uh, because I didn't serve. So by that he meant going into the military and I guess being willing to be shot at. Uh, and it really, as, as a World War II veteran of the U.S. Army, I think it really bothered him that I had kind of passed up the opportunity to be a naval officer. So that's how it kind of all fell together. I simply resisted the rather dirigiste directive I got from my dad and earlier from Rumsfeld to go to Annapolis. Okay, fair enough. I mean, you had that independent uh, approach to to life, even at a young age, and, uh, and you certainly ran into a problem with your father and other figures like Rumsfeld trying to track, put you on a particular life track. So anyway, in 1980, you get recruited into the Mars Jump Room program, and you're at the time studying at... UCLA. So, why don't you tell us, um, you know, what what exactly happened? You you start your your yeah. college. And... Yeah, let me, let me let me go one tick back on that. I, I, my my freshman year, nineteen seventy nine to eighty, I went down and studied at UC San Diego as a literature and writing major, which was really my life's dream and still is. I always dreamed of being basically a great American writer like John Steinbeck or Ernest Hemingway or Sinclair Lewis, and. Um, I went down to UC San Diego and had a great freshman year, but strange things were happening there that seemed to be certain forms, not so much of training, but of testing me. One time I was drugged with Everclear, a very powerful alcoholic beverage, and dropped off by a number of my dorm mates in a Dempsey dumpster down in Tijuana, and I had to find my way home even though I had only a passable grasp of Spanish, which was, I was studying as a literature major at, at UC San Diego. So there were a number of things that happened in that freshman year that seemed to be exploring whether we can send this individual to Mars and have him cope with novel situations. And then during that year, the second semester of that year, my dad said, uh, Andy, you have to transfer to UCLA. And I said, why, Dad? I'm rather enjoying going to UC San Diego. I can go down to the beach when I want to and go body surfing, I'm you know, enjoying my, my lit studies and writing all this, this stuff, short stories, poetry, everything. And um, he said, because we're going to be doing something up here. And by that, I know he meant that the Mars Jump Room was down in El Segundo, 
where from the UCLA's Westwood, California campus, I could just drive down the San Diego freeway, the 405, and boom, I was right there immediately south of the Los Angeles International Airport in at, you know, 999 North Sepulveda, where the jump room would be based. So my dad had me put in an inter-campus transfer. I was going to be transferring to UCLA. And at the beginning of that summer at our house in Chatsworth, he said, we're going to be going on a camping trip. And I said, who? And he said, it's just going to be you and your dad. And I said, oh, really, dad, where are we going? And he said, up to Lake Siskiyou. And that was in the living room of our house. And then the strange thing, that I, that, and there were a number of time anomalies during the next several years related to Mars. Everything reversed and then happened again. In other words, I literally watched my dad walk backwards back into the bedroom part of the house. And then things kind of like sped up and started going directly again. And he walked back into the living room and said the same thing to me. So there was some kind of duplication of time that was somehow involved with this. I still haven't figured that out, uh, what it was. So then we got in the car when he said, and we drove all the way from Chatsworth, like 600 miles north to Lake Siskiyou. And we spent about a day there. And then the family that moved into the campsite next to us was Thomas J. Stillings, who was then working as an operations analyst for Lockheed Skunk Works in Burbank, California, while living in La Kenyatta, California right near my dad's employer, the Ralph M. Parsons Company, the time travel defense contractor of this country. And his young son, about five years younger than me, a uh, 13, 14-year-old, uh, William Brett Stillings. And Mr. Stillings said to my father, Ray, you don't, you don't know me, but we work for the same company. So they early on kind of demonstrated each other's bona fides with the intel community to each other. And one thing that Brett and I remember is that before going to that campsite, both of our fathers said they were going to be going into the McLeod market in McLeod, California, and then came out 15 minutes later like you would to go into a convenience store to buy some pop or something or, you know, a sandwich. And then they came out with like five-day growths of beard. And so there was some kind of time travel or something they did using the McLeod market to like time travel, you know, to teleport somewhere, get briefed on the Mars program and what the training would, would hold and then rejoin us in our, in our automobiles. That happened to both Brett and I separately vis-a-vis our fathers. Both who were clearly, you know, affiliated with the U S intelligence community and defense department. And then we each separately, we drove up to the, uh, campground on the north shores of Lake Siskiyou, and then on the second day, we met each other as uh, a team of fathers and sons, and on the last night, the last Sunday, uh, my dad announced to Brett and I at about 10 o'clock, you know, with all the stars and, you know, Mount Shasta glowing in the distance and all the stars up in the sky, and we're having a campfire there. He says, Andy and Brett, you're going to be taking some classes tomorrow up at College of the Siskiyous. And I said, really, Dad? I thought we were going to have a a camping trip and maybe do some fishing, some water skiing. And he said, no, we've brought you up here to take a class up at the college. And I said, in what, Dad? As, you know, Brett's looking on. He said, everything to do with Mars. And I said, why, Dad? I, I, I took my astronomy breath requirement at UC San Diego. 
I'm not interested in space. Uh, I don't want to be an astronaut. Why do you, why do we have to take a class involving everything to do about Mars? I want to be a, 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 a continue to be a writer and maybe someday go to law school. And he said, because some of you kids in the program are going to be going there. And Brett and I looked at each other across the campfire, you know, kind of searching with our eyes whether we had just heard what we had just heard. And then the next day, which we think was August 18th of 1980, maybe that was the sun, maybe my dad had said that on Saturday. And then on Sunday, August 18th, we, they started at about one o'clock, our fathers got up from the campground and started walking at a diagonal towards one of the other campgrounds. So I being, you know, 18 and Brett being 13, scampered ahead of our fathers and we went into the campsite that they were walking towards, you know, across the, the way there at, at the campground there at College of the Siskiyou, or at uh, Lake Siskiyou, rather. And the individual who walked out between his two vehicles, or the, you know, the two vehicles that were parked there, like uh, a pickup truck and a camper, was astronaut Buzz Aldrin. And he came out and said, Andy, Brett, pleased to meet you, fellas. Well, listen, you two are going to be doing something that I did a few years back, and that's go off planet. And let me tell you, fellas, it's going to be an experience of a lifetime. And again, Brett and I kind of looked at each other because we had sort of, you know, befriended each other back at the campground and thought, is this Buzz Aldrin? Did we hear what we just thought he said that we're going to be going off planet in a little while? And that was sort of the introduction of Project Mars. The next morning, we were taken up to the extension building for College of the Siskiyous in Wairika, California. In those days, there was nothing around that building, no houses, no shops, nothing. It was just a big um, out, outgrowth area of basically a weed California. It was the old Wairika. And um, the people being trained for Mars, some of whom we'd go to Mars with, were there. Um, Barry Satoro, who would later become Barack Obama, Regina Dugan, uh, Willie McCool, Bernard Mendez, and others, and the training officer, Major Ed Dames. So that was sort of our the way they sort of didn't really ask us whether we wanted to be astronauts or go to Mars, but sort of tried to socialize us in an inevitable destiny to go to Mars, and that's what happened. So at this point, um, you know, we need to kind of know were you asked to sign a non-disclosure agreement? Because this kind of classified program is something that they don't just tell anyone and certainly not get people involved in the kind of details of it without going through some kind of uh, non-disclosure process. So were you ever asked to sign a non-disclosure for the Mars Jump Room? Yes. yes, not only that, but there was a long discussion about serving in a capacity where you would help fellow human beings on Earth and they would never know, know your name. And Major Dames described that as the greatest form of service, which was a theme that was voiced over and over again with us over the next four years or so when we were going to Mars. So we signed a non-disclosure and they emphasized that this had to remain a secret program but my position on the um, the secrecy and you know um, loyalty oath I signed as a child in, for Project Pegasus, which was dated, I think, um, 
October 5th of 1969 on Department of Defense letterhead and the form that Major Dames had assigned for Mars. The first one was when I lacked a capacity to contract, and the other one was when they used group conformity and the pressure, you know, peer pressure to override our consent. So my position is that the signing of that oath was not consensual. If they had wanted to really vet our decision with us and make it independent and volitional, they would have given it to us and asked us to take it back to our rooms or take it home with us and sign it. But they used the very conformity and esprit de corps that they had fomented over several weeks to pressure us into being excited about going, excited about helping human beings on Earth who would never know our names, as it were, and to all join. None of the 12 kids or or, young people present, then we weren't kids anymore. For Mars, we were, you know, in our late teens and early 20s. None of those individuals that are being trained for Mars begged off. And I had been even cheated of my pay in Pegasus. I should have said, well, look, Dad and Major Dames, I'm not going to do this. They cheated me of the very money I was supposed to be paid for time traveling for the government when I was a child. So you think I'm going to make that mistake again? I should have just gotten up and said, well, thank you very much. At the same time, sitting there wondering whether I should sign the consent to both join and, and keep everything secret, I thought if I don't do this, maybe they'll kill me because we now know that Mars is being visited by the U.S. government. So it wasn't really a volitional act. It was almost like they had intentionally put us between a rock and a hard place. And I felt that the better part of wisdom just to stay alive was to go along to get along. Now, can you remember anything about the contents of that NDA for the Mars Jump Room? Did they describe um, any penalties if you um, you know, broke broke the secrecy and and was there any kind of formal name given to the classified program or, or was it just pro uh, was it just yeah can you tell us if it was a yeah, formal name yeah. given to it, it it was never even really called project mars or you know the mars jumper program and i think the appellation the cia's mars jumper program was kind of a false description that was given to it in the truth movement it was clearly not a cia project there were some people in it who were literally CIA officers like Courtney M. Hunt, who had been in Project Pegasus. My dad had reporting requirements to CIA, just like every other U.S. military and intel agency. But he was DOD and, you know, Parsons. Um, uh, and as I mentioned, Brett's father was um, Lockheed Skunk Works. Bernie Mendez told me that he was then working for the Air Force. I was given a false identity as a Navy lieutenant commander and so forth so it was actually a special project they never gave it the name project mars or the jump room program or the cia's jump room program or anything like that it just had you know you are now entering a a program of the u.s government that is sending you know americans to mars blah 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 and it was basically just a request to be in it we had to keep it secret and that was pretty easy to do because whenever we would come back they would use this memory suppression device on us, known as the American reverse-engineered version of the Soviet LIDA machine. LIDA was a Russian uh, anagram or acronym, as it were, for L-I-D-A. I don't know what those four Russian words were. But Dames told us that that's what he was using on us. So usually when I was back at UCLA or on a summer vacation during those four years of college, 
I wasn't blabbing about the fact I was going to Mars. I mean, one time, one of my brother-in-laws, who was a physics major and interested in astrophysics, pointed to Mars and the night sky to me. And I didn't say to my brother-in-law, well, you know, I've been there. You know, it's sort of like they were expert at having us remember that we were in the program and like take a phone call at the dorms at UCLA and I would drive down to El Segundo and go to Mars. But then if I drove back to campus and took one of my history classes or went over to the UCLA Daily Bruin uh, offices where I was a writer and a reporter, it they had us in this under this kind of sort of binary mindset. I wouldn't call it mind control, but it was some ability to sort of have a secret life as a Mars astronaut, but not go around talking about it. Now, how that was architected, I don't really know, but I do know that memory suppression device was critical. Uh, there were times, though, when somebody would say something to me, like in my classes at UCLA, and I would acknowledge that I was going to Mars. Like one time, one of the co-eds next to me in Roger Daniel McCrath's uh, Western history class, you know, history of the American West, said, oh, you're getting through college by working construction, huh? And I turned to her and said, why do you say that? She said, the dust on your boots. And I said, oh, that's not dust from a construction site. That's dust from the red planet. And she said, really? I said, yeah, I'm in a secret program that's going to Mars. And she said, oh, God, I knew, I knew they were doing things like that. So there were times when a kind of an oblique reference to something, like when one of my doormates at UCLA took the cyanide capsule that I had a little, in a little plastic uh, bag in my pocket and almost tossed it into his mouth, and I actually leapt across the room and grabbed it from him so he wouldn't die. That was a cyanide capsule I had been given to suicide on Mars if, let's say, I was captured by predators and being eaten to death. You know, So there were times when the fact that I was going to Mars would kind of slip out. But I would say that that was only 1% that I would mention to a college peer during those years um, when I was you know, attending UCLA. It was very rare that I let slip about the fact that I was an American astronaut going to Mars. No. I'm sure some of the classmates who have seen me in the media now have said, God, that's not the Andy Bashaga that I knew. He, he never mentioned that. But we weren't supposed to talk about it, and they had us under sort of this binary consciousness where we simply didn't think about it when we were pursuing our normal lives. So were you ever warned off? Were you ever approached by Men in Black, for example, saying, hey, Andy, you know, you, you're talking too much about your Mars thing and just, you know, just shut up or something like that? Did that ever happen? No. No, I, uh, you know, I, I had been warned by that uh, representative of the executive office of the president at the Wolf Creek Pass Ski Lodge in southwest Colorado in early June of 2003 that if I didn't stop investigating, talking about, or writing about um, the time travel devices that I was exposed to in Project Pegasus, they couldn't guarantee my survival because I had to know that those were sensitive, compartmentalized national security secrets when I was exposed to them and to the, to the present to just basically be shut up and not do what my late father had asked me to do in 1989, which was tell the story of Project Pegasus and the advent of time travel because he felt we had been part of a great feat in American civilization. But that was not the view of, of the administration of George W. Bush. Now, when I started 
getting rolling with my Mars experiences in 2009, after first co- coming forward publicly about my time travel experiences in 2004, I did. I was not really approached. I was pretty much being advanced by individuals in the truth movement, in exopolitics like yourself, um, TV and radio uh, producers, and so forth. It was sort of like I was being moved aloft by the the thrust of the power of alternative media to bring truths to the American people and the people of the world. And I think that the the deep state kind of backed off and said, we can't stop this guy. He's doing a good job in terms of being clear and comprehensible and not vilifying the U.S. government. Let's let him go forward. But it did seem like there was resistance to me talking about Mars, even in the alternative media, um, vis-a-vis the alacrity by which I talked about time travel earlier, because I sort of wasn't an appointed gatekeeper on the Mars issue. So that's what I would say seemed to be a, a clear and present factor in my breakthroughs on Mars. There was sort of more resistance to, to, than there had been earlier to the time travel revelations. Well, I remember you doing an interview on Coast to Coast with George Nuri, I believe, where you talked about the Mars Jump Room and uh, Ed Dames uh, being the instructor at the College of the Siskiyous there. And he actually phoned in uh, during the, the Q&A, he phoned in. And I mean, he, I remember him saying, uh, you know, just repudiating the whole thing and, and you know, saying that uh, he, he didn't uh, participate in that at all. So how do you respond to him doing that? Well, it's complex, and I'm actually disappointed that he and I didn't have further opportunity to consult. When he, that was the November 10th, 2011 show that I had used to, again, bring, you know, share my own truths and experiences and bring forward my fellow astronaut, William Stillings, and, and Laura Eisenhower, the uh, great-granddaughter of President Eisenhower, because she was reporting how she was invited to go to the Red Planet in 2006 and 2007, and I knew that her Aunt Mary Jean was one of my fellow astronauts. I had gone to Mars with Mary Jean Eisenhower on March 3rd, 1983. So we brought that information forward. That was the first Mars broadcast I did on Coast to Coast AM, and Ed Dames called in. Now, he, he stated that he was not our Mars training officer, he could not explain why we had come forward and said that he was. And it wasn't just me. It was it was William Stillings. It was Bernard Mendez. And I believe also William Whitecroke confirmed Major Dame's involvement in the program. And then he started giving possible explanations. He stated that it could have been some interdimensional glitch where we had experienced an Ed Dame's, I think it was what he was describing or you know, theorizing, maybe we're interacting with a version or concomitant of him from another dimension. So it wasn't the Ed Dames in this dimension um, that, you know, we were being interviewed by George Norian, as it were. And and then he got, when, when I resisted that and said, no, three of us remember you, Major Dames. He then got angry and then he started swearing. And then his mic had to be cut off by uh, George Norian's producer. But But I was disappointed that he and I didn't have a chance to consult because there were time anomalies wrapped up in my study of what had happened in the Mars program. Let me just give you one example. In 1981, uh, October of 1981, I did a two-day a two interview of R. Buckminster Fuller. 
a year later when I published it in a magazine, I was contacted by the conspiracy researcher Ludwig Ahrens, Ludwig Sherman uh, Ahrens of, of Brookline, Massachusetts. He had gotten a condominium out in Marina del Rey, California. On, uh, in October of 1982, a year after I interviewed Bucky Fuller, and he had read my interview and wanted to meet me and discuss Fuller with me, because Ludd was kind of collecting uh, audio taped interviews of luminaries, that kind of progressive thinkers like your Bucky Fullers and your John Lennons. Um, I went over to his condominium in Marina del Rey, where he and his wife Sally were living. And during that meeting, when Ludd was kind of interviewing me about everything I knew, I talked about the murder-suicide of the writer Arthur Kessler and his wife, because I remembered reading it at the undergraduate research library in a magazine up at, at, at the UCLA campus where, that I was attending. And Ludd was shocked because Arthur Kessler and his wife were very much alive, but they did die in a murder-suicide in like March of 1983. So what I'm describing here is a time slip that indicates that there was clear evidence that at the time that I was going to Mars, there was some kind of misalignment of time. And William Whitecrow stated that to Brett and I. He said, you have to know that those of us who were going to Mars during those years were moving back and forth between two different timelines. So... What we can do with that is difficult, but I do know that that incident occurred. Sadly, Lud Ahrens committed suicide after 9-11, so I never had a chance to go back to that very much, although even before I was really focusing um, on my Mars memories um, or Pegasus, I could have called Lud as early as like 1989-90 and discussed our meeting in the early 80s. And I might have had one or two conversations with him about that, about the time anomaly that occurred during my meeting with him. He was a very irascible uh, and driven uh, researcher, you know, not an easy person to consult with, and uh, but but brilliant, you know, sort of predated all the conspiracy literature on what would become the internet, and I mean, 15 years earlier, uh, around 1980, and. Um, so I don't really know what happened. I wasn't really a fan of Arthur Kessler. I had never met him like I had met other writers. Uh, Norman Cousins, Ray Badbury, Harlan Ellison, Stanley R. Greenberg. Um, during my college years, um, uh, my media advisor was Louis Perdue, the novelist and former Washington Post uh, reporter. So it would have been natural for me to have met Arthur Kessler and interviewed him during my college years, but I didn't. So how did I have this preternatural knowledge of he and his wife's death about four, four months later? But those were the kind of time slip evidence that William Stillings and Bernard Mendez and I s sort of started comparing notes with when we got together to discuss Project Mars in around 2010, after I came forward in 2009. Um, so my point there is that I never wanted to vilify or be in opposition to Major Gaines. He seemed like a reasonable, intelligent person. I knew of his work in remote viewing beginning around 1982 or 92. So, and we saw that he had been a scientific and technical intelligence officer with the U.S. Army in 1980. Now, we remembered 
that he said that his when we when we were in training in summer of eighty, he said that his girlfriend was going to break up with him because he was going to go to Eastern Europe at the end of the summer to monitor Soviet troop movements from the German Czech border. But when he came forward on Coast to Coast AM on 11 10 2011, he said he could not have been our Mars training officer in August and September of 1980 because he was already there. He was over at the at some checkpoint on the German Czech border monitoring Soviet troop movements. So I never discounted the possibility that Ed Dames and then Stillings Mendez and I disagreed about meeting each other earlier in that summer because we were on two different timelines and that there could have been something discovered by consulting. Now, I have always kept open or, you know, extended the olive branch of conciliation, of reconciliation with Major Dames to have those discussions of what could have gone on and what could have caused it. I mean, after all, I had worked with Ed when he was very young, and I was very young, on Project Pegasus. He was taking me through the Montauk chair in a secret lab under the auxiliary gym at Los Alamos High School in Los Alamos, New Mexico, in those hidden summers uh, in the early 70s, uh, when my dad and I were living in White Rock, New Mexico. Um, he had given me a little bit of mescaline to relax my mind during one of those Montauk chair probes. And, you know, I had come up with things like um, John F. Kerry running for president. And he said, did you say John F. Kennedy? And I said, no, I saw John F. Kerry running for president, not as president. So I was actually coming up with actionable or reliable intelligence data in Project Pegasus collected by none other than Major Dames. And we're certain he was our instructor. So we really don't know why he said what he said when he called into Coast uh, in 2011. He could have been lying to preserve his military pension or project secrecy, or it may have been literally uh, a time slip case that should have been investigated by by both of us working in collaboration. I remain open to that, that offer. Well, I know that in doing my research into unacknowledged special access programs, that it's a requirement that anyone that is knowledgeable about that program has to go along with a cover story or deny any involvement. So it's quite possible that he simply just lied because that that's what he was obliged to do as a serving military officer with direct knowledge of an unacknowledged special access program, whether it was Project Pegasus or the Mars Jump Room or Jumpgate, that in both cases, I mean, he would have had to deny any involvement to continue to hold his uh, security clearance. Right, and, and Michael, I think that probably is the explanation for what happened. Um, we He sort of stopped talking about it and stopped saying at the beginning of conferences, you know, I wasn't on Mars and things like that, sort of these references to what had happened. When I, I certainly publicized that we had scoured the past so much you know, I had independently and then in concert with Stillings and Mendez regarding Project Mars that we have the name and the hometown of his girlfriend that summer, um, the first name and, and her hometown in California. And we were all in agreement that we remembered that. 
So I don't know how he would cover that up if we just had one person who knew him in 1980 who could say, yes, that was the name of Ed's girlfriend in 1980 and where she lived. So I think that's what was going on, that he was trying to cover up a revelation going on, an illicit uh, you know, threat to operational security and project secrecy. But our position was that, look, everything that we were promised had been denied. So keeping project secrecy on a special access program where you've been where you've been physically and psychologically damaged and not even paid and given what you were told and what you had agreed on a quid pro quo basis by the US government we thought actually necessitated us coming forward because we had been abused by the US government we had been cheated our constitutional rights had been violated our sanctity as sovereign human beings had been transgressed. That's what happened. In other words, we weren't just uh, day-tripping whistleblowers who were coming forward because we wanted to, or we were anti-government. We had been lied to and cheated and abused by our government. So if they wanted to maintain project secrecy, they should have kept their words, and they didn't. We had been promised a salary, and all that Brett Stillings and I were paid were two checks one for $34 and one for $55 on Department of Naval Intelligence letterhead. The only place we could find that agency was in the uh, account uh, of Area 51 by Robert Lazar, beginning around, what, 1989. And um, we had been promised zero-interest home loans to buy uh, residences in the Redding, California area, because they, they said that was going to become to Project Mars what Houston and Galveston Bay were to the NASA astronauts. We had been promised cradle to the grave, revolving door of government service. We had been promised full military benefits, medical, educational, and so forth. So as I look back on four degrees worth of academic debt that I could not pay off, I couldn't, I couldn't have you know, three jobs as a lawyer to pay off my academic debt. And I look back on the fact that my my career student pattern from 1980 to 95 was created by the U.S. government, by the saturation and speed learning I got as young as, as age eight forward. I thought, this is ridiculous. They, they, they gave me specialized training. They put me in a non-ordinary environments. In both those non-ordinary environments, I could have been killed or lost in time or lost in space. And they didn't, they didn't keep any of their promises. So we came forward because we felt it was necessary to protect the American people from the direction that the U.S. government had evolved toward, which is the deep state, a U.S. intelligence community and sometimes military violating constitutional principles and the law itself and basic fairness. Okay, well, one of the um, things that got a lot of public attention when you came forward talking about the Mars jump room was that uh, Barack Obama, or Barry Satoro, as he was known at the time, was part of that program and that you were actually roommates for a couple of nights there uh, when you were going through the training that uh, Major Ed Dames was giving at the College of the Syracuse, so can you yes. kind of walk us through uh, exactly you know what you knew of um, Barry Sotaro at the time? 
Right, Satoro. Yeah. When I, a couple of days into the class, I was walking towards the building, and he was walking along with his putative mother, Stanley Ann Dunham, a, a woman who, when British Intel checked Mr. Obama's genes in 2007 from a glass that he had drunk out of in, in England, he had no haplotypes for the British landed gentry. And of course, the Dunhams are right there at House of Names as a, a British landed gentry, you know, family line, or, you know, family or bloodline, at least based on heraldry. So they found he was not the son of Stanley Ann Dunham. She was certainly acting as his maternal figure in his life. She was a very wonderful woman. I, I liked uh, Stanley Ann Dunham very much. She was one of the parents who, like my father, Raymond Francis Bashago, Brett's father, Thomas J. Stillings, and even Regina Dugan's mother, who I never got the name of. Um, it was just Mrs. Dugan to us. Were parents who were attending the training. So I, I'm walking toward the, the, the room, now at the Weed, um, California main campus of College of the Siskiyous. And I said, listen, what, what's your name? And he said, Barry. And I said, Barry what? He said, Barry Sotoro. And I said, oh, the, our, our names have the same cadence. My name is Andy Bashago. You know, Andy Bashago, Barry Sotoro. And I shook his hand and said, pleased to meet you, Barry. So that's how he was identifying himself. And that's how we always knew him in the program. He was attending Occidental College. He was a handsome, rather light-skinned black man. I didn't know whether he was African-American. He didn't speak with any Ebonics indicating that he was. He was a nice guy, a smart guy, and we really liked Barry. Now, one time, relative to his actual identity, I came into the dorm room we shared for several days, and he was wearing the the red shirt and white mufti and cap of a Muslim and he was praying to Mecca and being aware of world religions as a UCLA history major and journalist I knew that that meant he was Muslim and I said oh Barry I didn't know you were a, a devotee or adherent to Islam and he said yeah I'm a member of the Sabud uh, sect from Indonesia in fact my birth father was the founder of that religion. That, and I said, well, what is Sabud? And he said, well, it's an offshoot of, of Islam, but it is a syncretist religion that collects beliefs from other religions, you know, Catholicism, Judaism, Hinduism, and so forth. And in, in Indonesia and the United States, particularly in the United States, it's very much like the Catholic Newman Society and the fact that we sponsor dinners and try to get people to talk about spirituality and so forth. So I said, well, how interesting. And I, I said, I can respect that. And I, I really believe in, in religious tolerance. So I, I don't think anything less of you that you're a Muslim. And I've had a number of uh, very wonderful Muslim friends during the years and, and Jewish friends and friends of all faiths. In fact, when I ran for president, I tried to remind everybody that most Muslims are not jihadists who practice violence or believe in it. They're peaceable God-fearing people who are just trying to live their lives and raise their children, and, and so forth. So I knew that he was a Muslim. I knew that his name was Barry Satoro, and I knew that his roots were in Indonesia. I did not yet know that Stanley Ann Dunham was more or less his handler for somebody and not his birth mom, although she was being held out as his birth mother. Now, she gave a one-day lecture on cross-cultural communications discussing her marriages 
to one gentleman from Kenya and one from Indonesia. And it was brilliant. It was like sort of a Margaret Mead level of anthropological insight as a scholar. But he didn't attend that lecture that Stanley and Dunham gave. That was kind of interesting. But that was, he was kind of telling us, you know, if you get up to Mars and some of the Martian humanoids invite you to go to their den and eat food with them, go to their den and eat that food with them as best you can. In other words, when on Mars, do as the Martians do. And she kind of went into anthropologists like Margaret Mead and Gregory Bateson to contextualize all that training. So then I went, I was talking to a white South African anti-apartheid activist on Bruin Walk at UCLA, where all the politicking would go on at tables in summer of 1983. And I was talking to that young man from South Africa, a white anti-apartheid activist from South Africa. His name was John. He had blonde, curly hair, but I never got his name. And I was talking to him about different um, theories of where the corporations were going to be going in our time. We were sharing the ideas of Buckminster Fuller and sort of the ideas of David Corton that would be in a book like When Corporations Rule the World and so forth. And this young man from South Africa, this activist, anti-apartheid activist, was so interested in what I had to say. He said, listen, why don't you come over to my rental house in West L.A. and meet my house guest uh, from Colombia? He will certainly be interested in what you have to say about where the corporations are, are going to be going in our lifetimes. And I went over there, and Barry Satoro was his house guest. But he was taller, had shorter hair was going to Columbia, not Occidental College, and gave me his name as Barack Obama rather than Barry Satoro. So I didn't even know it was the guy from the Morris program. In fact, after the white South African friend of his, or you know, contact of his, colleague of his, as it were, in the anti-apartheid movement, walked across the rental house, Obama turned to me and said, we know each other, don't we? I said, I don't believe so. Because I literally didn't know he was the same guy from the Mars pro program. But so the interesting thing about this is that Barry Satoro had begun using the name Barack Obama by summer of 1983. That was what? Five years before he entered Harvard Law School. Now, because other African Americans at UCLA had changed their rather ordinary um, um, American English names to very musical and vaunted uh, sort of African names. I said to him, you know, I have to be honest with you. I found that so sort of pretentious and unnecessary when African-Americans changed their names as you had, because look, African-Americans ancestors have been here along with Native American people more than most other groups, including Caucasian Americans. So I don't think African Americans have to change their name. You know, if their last name is Johnson, it may have been in this country for 400 or 500 years, you know. And he, he, turned, he said to me, no, that really is my name. Uh, my dad was from Africa, man. He was Barack Obama Sr. and I'm Barack Obama Jr. But Michael, that was not accurate because... The Barack Obama in Barry Satoro's 
putative mother, Stanley Ann Dunham's University of Hawaii class, was Barack Obama Jr. So my point there is that in summer of 1983, President Barack Obama did not know the true history of the Obama family, and he misstated it to me. And I think that supports everything we knew, that he was not an African-American, he was not um, from Africa, namely a Kenyan-descended person. He is a dark-skinned Indonesian named Barry Satoro. Well, that's obviously a very controversial thing to say, because um, I, I, I know, I mean, I've read his biography, and uh, like many others, I know that he spent whatever it was, half a dozen years or so in Indonesia and his mother was married to an Indonesian and so that was his stepfather. And, and it's quite possible and probably even likely that he did convert over to Islam just to be integrated into Indonesian society. Um, right, right. And that's, that's anybody's business. Now, there is the natural-born citizen versus accepting a Fulbright scholar as an undergrad as a foreign national that probably put him between a rock and a hard place as president. Now, but as to the degree of melanation in his skin, his religion, his nationality in, in, a, in a general sense, I am not a hater. I, I've made it clear that, look, I am not pro-white. I am not anti-black. I had a black girlfriend in as a senior in high school. I I had a hero at UCLA that everybody who's, everybody's name will recognize, Rafer Johnson the 1960 Olympic decathlon champion who was the student body president of UCLA. Rafer Johnson invited me to his book release in 1997 and I was the only Bruin to graduate after 1970 who was invited by Rafer Johnson to that that book signing of his book Be the Best That You Can Be. So I've made it clear because look, look here's what happened. Here's the double bind that even American white people were put in regarding the Obama mystery or the Obama cover-up. If you talk about the truth about Obama's actual origins, that he was not an African-American and he had put something over the black American population, the black American community, as it were, you are called a white racist. I'm not a white racist, quite the opposite. I was inculcated in racial harmony when I was in the first integrated first grade class in the state of New Jersey. Janet Johnson, the black American student who participated in that integration, was my friend, okay? So I was a, a racial harmony advocate and practitioner from kindergarten and the first grade forward. I've always had friends from all over the world of every nationality, religion, race, etc. So... I decided to come forward and tell the truth about Obama because he made it an issue. He he made a joke out of us, even though he had been one of our fellow astronauts. If he had come forward and said, you know, these individuals have come forward, this was a secret project to the U.S. government, and I cannot lie to the American people, we wouldn't have made an issue of his actual nationality and religion and so forth, or the fact that he wasn't an African-American, but it was only because by talking about those things, we were showing that he was lying about Mars that forced our hand. But I just want to make it clear in this interview, as I have in others, I am not some white supremacist. I would never even listen to an interview of David Duke. It would disgust me too much. I believe in brotherhood and love. I want to see 
you know, smile on your brother, you know, um, by the young bloods, uh, made the national anthem of the United States. You know, come on, people now, smile on your brother. Everybody get together, try to love one another right now. I think that we're being harmed by this stupid separatism of every kind that prevents us from being one people, one planet, and getting along with making a better world. So no, we did not come forward because we were Obama haters or haters of black people or white supremacists or just cosmic a-holes of, of whatever stripe. We came forward because he forced our hand. He is not an African-American and he was not born in the United States. And that was part and parcel of the Obama cover-up. He had to either admit that he had violated federal law by accepting a Fulbright scholar as an undergraduate or um, not natural born. So he had to be forced out of the White House, you know, be forced out of the presidency for either committing a felony in terms of the way he accepted the Fulbright or admitting he was not natural born under the Second Amendment. So it wasn't really arguing, it was his pursuit of the presidency that complicated everything. Well, and you know, that is lying about Project uh, Mars that made it even more complicated. Well, uh, that is a very controversial topic. I mean, uh, you know, to say that uh, Obama was was not the natural child of uh, Stanley and Dunham, and, and therefore his whole presidency was uh, fraudulent. I mean, that's uh, yeah, a lot of controversy well, wait, wait, there. Wait, wait, but wait, but, I, I but just, just just let me just, kind of, just let me point out here that um, in in your defence, uh, I, I know that uh, Wayne Matson, a former uh, National Security Agency analyst, I mean, he actually did a lot of research into Obama's background, and he did find a, a clear link between the CIA and Obama, Stanley Ann Dunham, and her family. So I think that's something that's largely uncontested, that Obama, there's a lot of controversy about his background, and that the CIA was very much a part of that. And so I think he was... Uh, an operative or used as an operative by the CIA, uh, which, I don't know, that raises a very interesting question. Is is he or was he the, the first, well, I, I guess he wouldn't be the first CIA-installed president, but still I think he was someone that the CIA had a big hand in installing. And, and of course, you talked about Clinton prior to that. so Right. Uh, Mike, Michael, to be fair, I am repeating the claim that the British found he was not the birth son of Stanley Ann Dunham. I don't know that, but I do know that he said his name was Barry Satoro. I do know that he admitted he was born or stated that he was born in Indonesia. I do know that he was a practicing Muslim of the Sabud sect of Islam. And I do know that he took the name Barack Obama several years later. So the data points that I do know are clear and present evidence of subterfuge. I, I'm not relying on somebody else's statement. Now, regarding Wayne Matson's findings about the CIA connection, I spoke with Doris Neely, the former CIA employee, who stated that she saw Obama at the CIA in 1982, and um, he was in, under like a State Department uh, education at the CIA in 82. I do know that Courtney M. Hunt, uh, who was the CIA attaché to Project Pegasus and Project Mars, told me to transfer to Columbia the very semester that Obama entered, which was 1981. And, uh, you know, when I even explained these connections to a scholar like Professor Henry Graff of Columbia, 
and I even spoke to Wayne Allen Root, his classmate, about Root's search and George Stephanopoulos' search for why there was were no classmates that could place Obama at Columbia University or New York City during those years in the 1980s. Professor Graff didn't even respond to my to my emails and phone calls. So we have a disconnect in American culture because of the use of subterfuge to create false identities. Look at what they were having me do when I was going to Mars. I was operating under a different name with a different ID as a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. So I'm not hostile to any of the spurious identities that Obama assumed as an African-born individual named Barack Obama. But I just think it's fair to to the African-American community, for example, and the Americans who trace their ancestry and even possibly concomitants of their life situation to slavery, Jim Crow, and invidious discrimination, that Obama is not from that ethnic group. That's, that's, that's deception. That's, that's putting one over on the black community in this country. And since I've had such close ties to that community my entire life, I resent that. I think I've done, I've, I've pursued the truth on behalf of the African American community, not even contrary to it. And, um, so I just want to make that clear that I'm not a hater and I'm just telling the data points that I know. I didn't think it was so cool when Alex Jones, um, you know, made fun of Barry Sotero and then President Trump picked that up because they didn't even have his Indonesian name right. But I think that there is so much evidence of contrivance in Barack Obama's life that unlike me, as was predicted in 1980, at least thus far, he has reached the U.S. presidency. I was told that year that I would also. So I may not. I may choose not even to run. Um, I'm certainly thinking of not doing so um, for many reasons. But um, we were told we were future presidents. He has now served for two terms as president, but he remains a mystery. I'm still studying things I've heard about George Washington. I've been told that he was hanging deserters at Valley Forge. I was told by a black minister, quite ingenious PhD in theology recently, that George Washington was removing the molars of his um, male black slaves to put in his own dentures. I am a student of the U.S. presidency as an American history graduate of UCLA, class of 1984. So I remain interested in the presidency, even if I don't seek it. So I believe that the individual using the assumed name Barack Obama remains a mystery as president. I know I served in Project Mars with him. What else was he involved in? Well, let's talk a little bit more now about the actual Mars missions, and uh-huh. and we'll come back to uh, Barack Obama's involvement in that. So at the College of the Siskus, uh, Major Dames briefs you on what you're supposed to do on Mars, and I, and I yeah. and he, uh, quoted... I mean, the quote was, simply put, your task is to be seen and not eaten. So can you explain exactly what lay ahead of you for these Mars missions? Right. He, well, he said we would go up, you know, by a jump room, and we should walk out around the jump room, at least initially close enough to run back to the jump room if we saw any predators. 
We should always remain wary, especially of the two inevitably lethal predators, the the reptoid that was sort of a 16-foot-tall velociraptor with a T-Rex head that looked almost like a chicken's head. It wasn't exactly a dinosaur head. Um, uh, it had four legs, but very vestigial upper legs and ran on its two hind legs. And then this insectivoid predator that was about the size of a small garbage truck uh, in the U.S. and had about 10 or 12 legs and these big uh, savage um, saber teeth in the front of it and that could just kind of chop somebody up and were very fast. So we had specialized training that if they did corner us and were going to eat us to try to run around in zigzag patterns to tire them out, make them just get disinterested and walk away and not eat us. Uh, I was given both a photo flash gun to use that Brett Stilling's father showed me how to use uh, to protect myself and my colleagues on the surface of the red planet. Uh, I had that capsule of cyanide and that little packet of plastic in my pocket um, that one of my UCLA classmates almost threw in his mouth. Thank God that he didn't. Um, that would have been tough to, to explain why he had suicided with that. Um, and we had we, we had a an experience with this pod uh, metallic sort of uh, square or with oblong edges kind of pod that we might be living with li- living on in uh, on the red red planet. Uh, we had we had instruction in this sort of staccato way of yelling something like one time it, um, Regina Dugan said something like a cup on a bar stool sitting there that when Ed just put a, a cup on a bar stool and asked her to quickly yell what it was in a staccato voice so we received this kind of specialized training to yell something very staccato and very accurately and quickly so when I saw that uh, gray ET on the roof of the jump room on Mars called the corkscrew as I was walking out at night or the late evening in front of uh, Courtney Hunt and William Stillings I quickly yelled court threat a gray on the roof observing us so we got a couple days of that kind of training how to run around in zigzags if we were cornered we were given ethical training that if we did not want to any of for any of us who were armed there were two considerations about our weapons one is there was there was three settings on this photo flash gun on the right was heat or stun the middle one was was stun or heat and then the the setting on the left was kill so we we could either kind of stun burn or kill a predator with this uh, or a martian humanoid for that matter with this photo flash gun so we received ethical training that look if any of you young people want to go up to the red planet and have to kill a martian humanoid or animal and don't want to from an ethical perspective we are entirely comfortable with your choice if you want to accept your death rather than impose theirs that in fact was the ethical training inside the u.s intelligence community about this voyage these voyages to another planet it wasn't go up there and kill whatever you want and in fact when there was a british astronaut who was doing that 
we actually reported him to the program. We got his name and we said, this individual from Britain is shooting anything he sees up there. And how is that good for our civilization? How can that cause the Martian humanoids to trust us? It might put us in danger as predators landing on their planet. You know, violent creatures that are killing the Martian humanoids and animals up there. So we actually put one of the British astronauts on report. The other consideration that is even if we use the kill setting on the far left of the photo flash gun, that it might not take down the big predators. It might just antagonize them. And as Dame said, it might even cause them to eat you slowly to cause a maximum amount of, um, of pain while they're devouring you. Well, so you know, with, with such large predators, you would probably imagine there'd be like a ratio of maybe 101 in terms of like um, herbivores or, or prey uh, for such large predators. So did you, you know, did you see any kind of um, herbivores or, or uh, prey in addition to the predators there on Mars? What did they look like? Well, I, I, saw, I saw animals both in my training and on the surface that were exactly like modern animals on Earth, like cows and pigs and rabbits, for example, different kinds of ungulates like deer as if they had been put there recently from Earth or maybe in antiquity or just common descent from our common ancestors on panspermia or intentional placement there by whoever populated Earth with animals and humans and so forth. Some were, so some were animals that presently existed on Earth. Some were animals that once existed on Earth but were extinct. And some were hybrids of both living and extinct Earth species. Now, there were only about 30 major ones. A couple times we saw the Martian humanoids like taking down a water buffalo creature and towing it on the ground to bring down into their underground dens and devour. But my overall impression, now Ed, Ed Dames may have covered this in the lectures about bio, the biology of Mars, but my impression was that Mars has a climax population, essentially where meat eaters are eating other meat eaters. And then they are very fastidious, so they don't want to become too logy from overeating and be eaten themselves. Because, for example, when that dinosaur-like predator um, killed that fellow astronaut Bob, he was a Caucasian man, about 45, rather overweight, and Courtney Hunt and I just saw him bitten in half after running that zigzag pattern to avoid to try to make the predator run away from him. He was up on sort of an arroyo, and we heard him yelling, hey, hey, over here, over here. And then when we got up to that plateau, that arroyo, we could see that he wasn't yelling to fellow Americans or, or Britons on the surface, you know, astronauts. He was yelling at a predator to attract the predator to him and save his colleagues, which is obviously very courageous in what we had been trained to do. And then we watched him get bit in half by this 16-foot-tall uh, dinosaur-like predator. Um, so now what I said to Courtney Hunt, are we next? He said, I don't think so. Because we were about 40 or 50 feet from the predator after he bit our colleague in half, 
I'm actually maybe closer because I know we got some sp- sp- blood and uh, organic splatter that either got on our shoes or pretty close to us. So it could have been even closer than that. So maybe the predator was maybe, I don't know, 20 or 30 feet away from us. And it turned its head very slowly and looked over at us. And his left eye looked evil. It was sort of like, oh, I think I'll go over there and eat those, you know, or bite those to death. So I thought my goose was cooked. And I, I almost got like this, in this sensation of almost like a single pointed focus on what was next. Like I was preparing to lose my life because it was just ahead. And we just kind of froze. And after it kind of looked away from us, as I said to Courtney Hunt, Court, is that, uh, are we next? And he said, I don't think so. And I said, why not? How can you know that? And he said, they're very fastidious eaters, probably because they don't want to overeat and then be eaten. So the only film ever made on Earth that I think kind of explained the biome of Mars would be maybe uh, Captain Cousteau's documentary about Clipperton Island, that atoll 1,300 miles off of Baja, California, where even the same crab species is eating each other. In other words, in a climax population, meat eaters survive by eating other meat eaters. And that, I think, is the danger of the surface of the red planet. Now, um, you obviously were there uh, breathing the oxygen on Mars. So uh, tell us a little bit about what that felt like. Did you need any breathing apparatus to assist you? We had a breathing apparatus that we could bring. It had a pump on it. And so if you got short of breath, you could activate the pump back and forth and and get some assistance in your oxygen. That was probably an oxy, a very rudimentary oxygen concentrator because Mars does have oxygen. Now, I had one of those on my first trip. Now, the three Americans who joined up with me on the surface when I went up by myself on July 7th of 1981, one was even smoking. A tall female was smoking on the surface as I saw other U.S. and and British astronauts do on the surface, not even the Russians. Um, So some people had the lung capacity to deal with the shortage of oxygen. What I was often experiencing is what I've called hypoxia. And, you know, even about a week ago, the Mars researcher Barry Rothman of Florida was saying, Andy, I've investigated hypoxia. I even had it. And how could you say you had hypoxia and didn't pass out? What I was talking about was not clinical hypoxia with attendant unconsciousness, although that certainly could have sparked that incident where Bernard Mendez collapsed right in front of him. I had to carry him a mile to the jump room on my shoulder so he wouldn't be devoured on the surface of Mars. What I meant by hypoxia is a shortage of oxygen that occasionally caused stiffness and pain in my legs and feet. My body was not getting enough oxygen. When I carried uh, Bernard Mendes to surface, and, I, and I, an incident that I've dated around 1982, I was about 20 and a half years old. I, uh, I was about 180 pounds. Bernie, we believe, was about 160 at that time, being a couple inches shorter than I and also in good shape. I didn't mean that I was suffering from clinical hypoxia and would pass out next. I just meant that I was like a, a sturdy mountaineer, you know, climbing at eleven or 12,000 feet above sea level on Mount Everest, and I was short of oxygen a lot of the times. 
on Mars. One time I started hyperventilating um, naturally from a sense of a shortage of oxygen. A couple of times Brett Stillings grabbed the oxygenator out of his pocket or his hand and started using the, the uh, respirator that we were given. So it's basically a an atmosphere that human beings from Earth can breathe, but with less oxygen. And the three Martian humanoids that I met in New Jersey in the early 70s had some kind of respiratory device probably to cut the greater amount of oxygen they were getting on Earth. Um, that's what I meant by hypoxia. Now, that also explains why different Mars anomalous associated with my group, the Mars Anomaly Research Society, including Andrew R. Steck of the United States and Paul Goodwin of the United Kingdom, uh, discovered the blue skies on Mars that we had reported. That would be from the refraction of the oxygen in the Martian atmosphere. Now, you talked about people like uh, Regina Dugan, the former director of DARPA, that she was uh, part of the, this Mars Jump Room program, and Obama. So did you see them also on the surface doing the same thing as the rest of you, like just staying up there well, and surviving? Yeah, we remembered many of the people we've been trained with. I mean, I can certainly remember Barry Satorio slash Barack Obama, Regina Elvira Dugan, I had introduced myself very early um, upon the class sessions in uh, uh, the second or third week of August 1980 and introduced myself and even asked her if that name was Irish because I was interested in ancestry and, you know, and issues like that. I was rooming with Barry. I had gone up there with Brett Stillings. We were introduced to Bernard Mendez and he was sort of introduced to the class as a kind of a Defense Department investigator who had been placed in the program. Later, Bernie Mendez would describe it was to resolve certain mysteries that were occurring on the surface, like somebody dying or losing a limb, and then being alive or having their limb back on when they would use the jump room to get back to Earth. Uh, we all remembered Ed Dames. There was another student from San Mateo, California, named Eric Schoenfeld. There was a psychic, and the group of psychics would be deployed to follow us on Mars, who would meet when our class was breaking up every day. And we know his last name was Angus, like the beef, A-N-G-U-S. Remember that? Because I had joked about that when I met him as my dad and I were leaving the room, which I shouldn't have done. It was his, it was his name. So I kind of violated the, the uh, Dale Carnegie principle, making fun of his name just as a joke. And, uh, you know, I was, I was young. And, and naive, foolish, you know, and uh, in that sense. And uh, so we remembered all of those people, but in the jump room at El Segundo or in the CIA building immediately west of the George Washington Bridge in New York City, we would sometimes encounter those trained with us. It might be Obama. It might be Stillings and Obama. It might be Dugan and myself or Dugan with Obama, they were always sort of mixing and matching all the trainees. But what I can say for sure is apparently, at least in our experiences, they only used about half of those of us who were trained. So the others were either assassinated or begged off or were not used because of their weight. One of the concerns I remember being told about is that we had to try to control our weight and the amount of added 
adipose tissue in our physiques because the heavier we got, the fatter we got, the more at risk we were to be eaten on the surface. In fact, that first death I saw on the surface, Bob, was a rather corpulent 45-year-old, certainly fatter than I ever got it at any age. Um, well, and, you know, uh, th this has to kind of be said, and, and you can respond to this, but I know a lot of people, when they hear this, that people are trained to go to Mars, and they go up there, and they're just told to just kind of stay on the surface, run around, zigzag, and, and uh, evade predators, and you have a flash gun to protect you if, if you feel ethically obliged to defend yourself. But that sounds so ridiculous that it makes your story hard to believe. So, you know, how do you respond to that? Well, for, first of all, the, the photo flash gun wasn't in, introduced right away. I was shown how, the, its existence and how to use it by Thomas J. Stillings over at the Stillings uh, home in, at that time in La Cañada, California, in like summer or fall of 83. So we didn't always have a weapon to defend ourselves. Now, when we were given it, we were told we didn't have to use it if we didn't want to kill humanoids and animals at all as nonviolent those practicing nonviolent resistance I mean I had taken Gandhi and nonviolent resistance at UCLA during those years so I was a bit of a pacifist um, they must have known that because they must have had my academic history my unfolding academic perspectives and classes uh, we could use it but we were also told if you do use it it might not work to do anything but antagonize the largest predators we were also given not only the uh, the training to run around in zigzags if we couldn't get away from the predators to try to or or you know told how to really just run like hell if if we could like brett and i did one time with one of the insectoid predators and it succeeded we got away from it um but that if it didn't work to run away from them or run in zigzag patterns then we could just sit down and allow ourselves to be eaten but if we didn't want to be eaten to death or bitten to death, some of us had the cyanide uh, tablets in our pockets. So it was actually a very integrated and commonsensical approach to young astronauts being in harm's way constantly on another planet. We couldn't just get to the jump rooms and come home. In fact, we would have been lucky to get, as we started to expand beyond the jump rooms in this process of sort of exploring and walking around the surface, Sometimes the, the closest jump room was more than a mile away. What's that, 5,280 feet? So we would have been possibly bitten or killed by a predator if we didn't get back to the, uh, the jump rooms fast enough. The time that Brett and I ran at the, our highest, our fastest speed to get away from that insectivoid predator, we were really exhausted. You know, I was like 20 at that time, and Brett was, what, 15. So we were in peak condition as young men, and uh, and and we did get away. But we were, you know, we were like people who had just run the 10,000 or a marathon or something. We were utterly exhausted. So actually, I think those factors are can, can you maybe Can you maybe explain that? Can you just explain what, what it would have been like running on Mars? You know, at, at, at peak velocity, I mean, you're, you're being trained on Earth, you know, you've been given uh, descriptions of what you're going to encounter there, and then you go through the jump gate, you're on Mars, and then you're told, okay, zigzag and run away from these predators. So how do you do that? I mean, how do you run away 
um, and zigzag on Mars if if the g-force is what a, a third? I mean, well, w- wouldn't you, you just be you, stumbling you could, all the time? Well, first of all, we were told you could just flat out run away if you think you can get a you can you, you can beat it and get away from it, or you're not going to trigger it to chase you like many predators will, like the predators that attack humans on Earth, like grizzly bears and mountain lions. Right, Sometimes but, but you know, if I'm running stand. away, but if I'm running away from a grizzly bear or a mountain lion, you know, mo- the muscles in my leg have the memory of of how to balance and how much force to exert so that I can run away. But on Mars, I mean, your your leg muscles wouldn't they they would be kind of like wouldn't have a clue because now it's a th- what is it a, a third of the gravity or whatever it is a forty percent? No, it wasn't that light. No, no, no. Look, it was definitely a different experience in the sense that. The Schumann resonance was different, the oxygen levels were different, and the experience of being pursued by a huge, dangerous predator wasn't like, you know, competing in cross-country in high school or something, you know, or even the Olympics in your 20s. It was an, it was nightmarish, and I've been quite upfront about the fact, quite, you know, forthcoming about the fact that whenever I was on Mars, in any situation even calm moments on Mars, I felt like I was in one extended nightmare. I never, the inner recesses of my brain, my mind, never relaxed on Mars. We knew that we could fall down and get bitten by a poisonous snake or step on one. We knew we could be eaten to death by these, or bitten to death by these uh, incredibly vicious predators. It was a nightmarish experience. Okay, well, let, let me ask you this then. During your memories of being on Mars and running from these predators, do you remember tripping or stumbling over often, or was it just kind of like very occasional? I don't remember. I don't remember tripping, but I remember there was a slightly sort of gummy sensation to our legs that was going on the whole time we were there, and we had adapted to it. I also know that look. Bernie was 160 pounds when I carried him at least a mile. It may have been longer. And I only had to put him down on the ground like two or three times and then pick him up again and do a fireman's carry on my right shoulder to bring him into one of the jump rooms to save his life. So we were evincing athletic performance, but none of us were athletes at the college level or, you know, Olympic athletes at that level. So we were adapting to what we were being challenged to do. But I'm making no bones about the fact that it was a challenging experience it's definitely the heart it was much harder to to function and survive and protect others on mars than it was to time travel as a child it was more frightening it was more challenging because of the predators the low oxygen the lack of water on the surface and other factors the common out common existence of snakes on the ground and this type of thing so it was it was a nightmarish interlude okay. in my long life and I do not ever want to repeat it well, in a future uh, life so now the, the question I think a lot of people would have about what you've described is what was the purpose of it, why would they be sending people up there, young people up to Mars just to run around and evade predators for you know, for up to a day, I mean what, what was the purpose of that, what's the objective they were clearly And they told us they were clearly planning to expand the U.S. presence and I assume also the British and Russian presence, or Soviet Russian presence 
on the red planet and this kind of I guess we could refer to Richard Dolan's concept of the breakaway civilization but I just think it was those countries had a treaty to cooperate in essentially settling and probably pacifying the red planet in some way so I didn't see 1500 Americans on Mars when I was up there but my fellow Mars astronaut William White Crow whose original name back in Project Pegasus was William Paris, P-A-R-I-S, and that's how he had originally introduced himself to me. White Crow, who then became sort of a mystic and shaman in adulthood, told me that, in fact, there were 1,500 Americans up there when we were going up there. So in that sense, maybe about half of our training class that I never ran into in the, in the jump room buildings or the jump rooms or on the surface of Mars really were up there, but they were never sent to the same jump room out of seven or eight that we were always being sent to from from earth but um white crow insisted that there was many as 1500 up there now mars is what 40 percent the volume and mass you know the circumference and mass of earth so that was enough for them to be deployed certainly all over the equatorial or middle latitude the middle latitude of Mars, maybe even the, the snowy and cold polar regions of Mars, but I did not run into 1,500 Americans on the surface. Now, on the other hand, I got conflicting information from Bernard Mendez. He said there were only 40 people in Project Mars, including us. It was a very small group, and we should be proud of that. So I, I don't know. The thing that I know about the U.S. intelligence community and what we've come to call the deep state, this kind of runaway intelligence community involved constantly involved in the abuse of power is that they were constantly involved constantly in lying just like when you're you go to law school and you start practicing with lawyers and you learn very quickly that you're swimming with sharks know that anytime that you're having contact with with a u.s intelligence you're swimming with sharks with liars i even said to courtney hunter the cia one time i said courtney you know how you're uh you're in like an et and he said, no, Andy, why would you say that? And I said, because you're always giving me answers only to desired questions. In light of the fact I'm going to another planet for the U.S. government, and you're looking at me sometimes when I ask a, a straightforward, logical question and you're not answering me? Mm -hmm. It's like the, the U.S. intelligence community and what has become this runaway disaster known as the deep state has elements of sort of cultism, dishonesty, delusion, deception, and almost like a paranoid view of communication. So they're constantly screening the information they're sharing. And as a result, they were tantamount to lying to the Mars astronauts, even when they were just not telling us the truth. That's what it became basically was an extended game of liars poker where the military and, and defense and intel people we were having contact in the program were lying about us. That may have continued into, what, 25 years after we stopped going to Mars with the performance of Major Dames on Coast to Coast AM. Well, I know that uh, there have been three people that have come forward and verified uh, what you've said about these trips to Mars. I've, I've heard them talking about it, Brett Stillings, William White Crow and Bernard Mendez have all 
come forward and, and independently verified that yes, that there was this Mars jump room program and, and that they were involved in it. Now, um, unlike the other two though, Bernard Mendez had another explanation was that he said that rather than physically being taken to Mars, it was actually a simulation. And, and I would kind of like say that maybe he is correct that it was a simulation because the answers you gave to, you know, just being able to run around and jumping and all of that on Mars where the gravity is like 60% less than on Earth. I mean, if you just go there without any physical training and you start running on Mars with a, a, with a gravity of 60% less than Earth, I mean... You, you will just start stumbling and falling all over the place because your muscles won't know how to how to do it, and so maybe uh, Mendez was correct with his uh, simulation hypothesis. How do you respond? Well, let, let me clarify a couple of data points here. First of all, four of my colleagues confirmed working with me on the red the surface of the red planet. The, the fourth being uh, Ken Johnston, who has extensive proof of his connections to uh, NASA and projects. Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, Skylab, and the space shuttle, as well as uh, being on Mars. And then their confirmations back vis-a-vis me are eight points of contact. So it's really five fellow astronauts have come forward in addition to Laura Eisenhower describing being invited to go, but, but begging off. Now, what I'm saying is that from the beginning, I have been dedicated to the truth. It wasn't Bernard Mendez who developed the theory of the synthetic quantum environment or simulation theory being the explanation. It, in fact, was Bernard Mendez and myself. And, in fact, we gave a lecture together uh, in Vancouver, B.C. in 2012 to that effect, which I believe might uh, might be on the Internet. But in any case, in trying to resolve the anomalies of what realm we were visiting, we were asking whether... The jump room device was essentially more interdimensional rather than interplanetary. And that's what we meant by the synthetic quantum environment theory. Um, so I don't necessarily think that was proven because, for example, one time when Brett Stillings and I were walking across the surface, we looked up and we saw the Martian moons Phobos and Demos right above our heads. And far up in the sky, but, but above us. So if it was a either a virtual reality or this kind of synthetic quantum environment simulation. It was, um, it was very good in simulating the real Mars. I think if it was not the interplanetary Mars, you know, the one up there in the night sky uh, that Elon Musk is trying to send people to uh, in real time, I think it was probably more of an interdimensional penetration like some of these science fiction novels. Remember that kind of almost sort of soft porn classic Blade by Richard Lord where Blade would get in this contraption, this box of some kind, and then step out in a different dimension in reality? That, I think, is more accurately the explanation of the interdimensional theory. Not that we were still on Earth thinking we were going to Mars, but that what they thought was Mars was some Mars-like terrain um, in another dimension? That it was actually an interdimensional device that the that the Mar that the aeronautical repositioning chamber was working, and that may go to the multiverse. Um, 
Certainly, the involvement of Howard Hughes and my contact with Howard Robart Hughes has been validated and supported by a, an Air Force general who has studied the life and times of Howard Hughes, and that's Mark Music. He, in fact, has written a foreword to my Mars memoir confirming that the four or five major data points that I have provided about Howard Hughes could only have resulted from working with him. So we, if, if we assume arguendo that that was the real Howard Hughes and that those memories are accurate, we have to give credence to the fact that Hughes was on the project and advanced military and, and intel applications like the Glomar Explorer were his fort as a brilliant engineer and inventor. So he would have had ambit over one of these almost sci-fi type inter interdimensional devices to literally take us into another reality. Because for example, even on Project Pegasus, yes, I was traveling interdimensionally, but on Earth. The, the advance they seem to have made in the intervening 10 years was the penetration of other realities, non-ordinary environments. And that's what both I and Bernard Mendez were trying to frame with the, the theory of the synthetic quantum environment. Well, it's definitely um, very plausible that there was some kind of interdimensional component to this. But, uh, you know, I think that it's also very possible that there was some kind of... Um, elaborate simulation involved here because I just can't wrap my mind around the fact that people would be sent to Mars to evade predators without any kind of training for how to handle the lower gravity situation there because you, you just can't be transported to Earth to Mars and be expected to run and escape capture. Uh, you know, if if you're in a in, in a gravity field that's sixty percent or something less. I mean, to me, and also the uh, lack of overall um, objective to this in terms of what was being achieved by having you. Well, we there. knew what we were trying to achieve, and they had told us we were Mars explorers. We were astronauts. Look at the silly things that the twelve Americans who were sent to the moon did. They got out, and one of them shot a golf ball. They drove around in a golf cart-like contraption, the lunar rover. In other words, that's what you do when you're tenderly acclimating people to a new world. We weren't just there to be seen and not eaten. That was the initial experience that we knew would be part and parcel of the experience. But they, we then started doing more on the surface. Like one time, Obama and Mendez and I dug a hole. So we were actually exploring. One time, Courtney Hunt and I met one of the original Martian humanoids, the Homo Martis Martis, who looked sort of like a haunted sort of Marty Feldman from Earth, but even sort of spookier and more non-ordinary than that in his, in his physiognomy. And he took us down into his lair, his residence under the surface. So we were being introduced to Mars for, for future deployment there. And I think I alienated my dad and the government when I just said around 1984, hey, this is it. I'm not going up there anymore. I don't even know, in fact, if Brett Stillings continued to go. He said he did after 1984. Um, so, no, it wasn't just to be seen and not eaten. That was just a joke Ed Dames made during our training. But then as the 
the program trans you know transpired as it as it carried forward we did a number of things up there that involved nothing more than being seen and not eaten he was just saying that as a joke to remember that whenever we were up there we could be eaten, but we had to we had to learn about that pod that we might be staying in there may have been not a 20 years in back but maybe a three-week stay up there because i remember all of us checking in at 999 north sepulveda with only a certain amount of personal property we could take. And I think we stayed in one of those pods up there, and when we came back, they might have taken us back in time. They had done that with Obama, Dugan, and I, or should I say Sotoro, Dugan, and I, when they moved us back from August of 80 to June of 80 to work and contribute theses of our opinion of whether the Martian humanoid was a threat to ours, was not, or it could not be determined for the threat assessment that the CIA was doing on the Martian humanoid civilization. And then we just rejoined our class in August, September of 80. So there was a little bit of minor quantum displacement going on right as we began training. And then maybe when we did like that three-week stay and then came back as a group, not a 20 years and back, but like a three-week a three, a three there and then back. And then there was that offset I mentioned regarding my prediction of the death of Arthur Kessler. How did I know about a news event from three or four months later in October of 1982, not March of 1983? So there was some quantum displacement going on, and I've, I've always been quite amenable to the possibility that it was an SQE, a synthetic quantum environment. But looking at how we were getting there and how we were being treated upon coming back, look, if it was a virtual reality, where we were just being knocked out with gas or something in the elevator and then being mind controlled to believe these things were happening, why then would we continue to be standing in the jump room? Why would we get kind of dizzy and nauseous? Why would the uh, rectilinear walls of the elevator become a, 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 a tunnel where we had to hang, hold on by pushing our hand against the side of the tunnel so we could stand up? Why would Ed Dames be memory wiping us upon coming back from Mars? I believe that all of the evidence of how we were being handled by the program only leaves several possibilities. It was either the real Mars being reached by a revolutionary transport device, or it was another reality being accessed in real time and in reality by a very advanced um, quantum probe quantum device of some kind, like the science fiction that had been emerging and that I read, you know, in the 1970s, like Blade by Richard Lord. It's got a few kind of soft porn chapters, I think, to, to interest young men to think about that, but it was pretty much close to that kind of scenario, that this individual was kind of like a bodybuilder who was entering this room and then going to another dimension. Maybe that's what we were doing. So it could have been not the planet Mars in the sky, but a Mars-like reality or even the Mars concomitant in another dimension. I'm certainly amenable to that explanation. But it happened. We were there boots on the ground. Or how could the dust be on my boots for that co-ed sitting immediately on my left in Roger McGrath's American West history class at UCLA asked me what why there was – you know, whether I was working construction while getting through school and what was 
how could I have all that red dust on my on my Nike Calduras or whatever my boots were, you know, my construction boots? Well, I think uh, definitely there's a mystery there to be unpacked, and I'd love to have you back and and we continue to revisit this and maybe look at some of the other people who claim to have travelled to Mars and compare what they've said with what you remember about your experience and uh, we can maybe get closer to the truth of what's happening on Mars and uh, what the Mars Jump Room program was doing. And, you know, I'd love to, Michael, because I, 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 I think this is really advancing the truth, which has been my commitment since I came forward publicly in 2004. Um, I... I, I I would always, and I will always cite the fact that absence of evidence does not connote ev- evidence of absence. So, for example, when my known Mars colleague and friend and co-trainee from the first day of training, from even a couple of days before training, William Stillings, when he cited during his truth-telling, and I don't really know what year, it might have been around 2013 or so, that he had encountered 20-foot-tall humans on mars i said i i didn't i don't know if brett is misremembering confusing dreamt content when he was going to mars for lived content you know lived experience or he did encounter that but the principle i've been trying to share with everybody is look just because andy didn't encounter 20 foot tall humans on mars that doesn't mean brett didn't because even as Rumsfeld said, you know, we know what we know, we know what we don't know, but we don't know what we don't know. That's what motivated Mendez and I to do that program about the possibility that we were going to a synthetic quantum environment when we appeared together in Vancouver, BC in, in 2012. Um, we, I think we all have to start adhering to the truth and the truth of our experiences. Not our beliefs, not what other people are saying. And I've often said we have to shape our beliefs based on our findings, not our findings based on our beliefs. And many times people are um, arriving at their understanding of reality by rumor, by hearsay, by false allegation, where other people's science fiction fantasies, for whatever reason, dream, imagine, intentionally made up or whatever are shaping their worldview. Well, we we will actually revisit this because I think that is going to be very important uh, to kind of like find out what is really happening on Mars. So, Andy, I look forward to having you back on Exopolitics today and us diving more into this Mars material and how your testimony and experiences compared to others so i want to thank you for being on the show andy thank you so much i look forward to uh, our future discussions you have been listening to exopolitics today with dr michael sala please remember to like share and subscribe to this channel join or start a conversation in the comments take the time to explore the vast library of best-selling books webinars and podcasts by dr sala Visit exopoliticstoday.com.